Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you would turn with your Bibles with me to John chapter 13, we'll be reading three verses. I was reading this passage about a week ago um, in my daily devotions, and um, verses 3 to 5 really struck me between the eyes. Um, and so today's, today's message will come from there. So starting at John chapter 13, verses 3 to verse 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he came from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. This is the word of the Lord. Our dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Um, As I speak from your word, I pray that you be with me. Allow me to say only what you want me to say and nothing more or less than that. In your son's precious name, amen. So I was reading these verses, and what struck me was the progression of events. How John makes it clear is um, what happens in in verse 3 directly affects what happens in verses 3 and 4. Jesus knows three certain facts. Number one, that the Father had given all things into his hands. Number two, that he came from God. And number three, that he was going to God. And so in verse 4 and 5, he does certain actions. He rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he takes a towel, pours water into a basin, and washes the disciples' feet. The way that John constructs this passage, these three verses, um, he makes it clear that it is because Jesus is thinking about these things that he does what he does, and he washes the disciples' feet. Um, Now, most commentators, what they do is they focus on the cultural and the social significance of the actual washing of the feet. But today, I'd like to focus more on the mind of Christ that drove him to wash the disciples' feet. Um, From there, we'll glean two main lessons, and then from there, we'll move on to the implications for today. So the mind of Christ, first and foremost, was grounded in reality. Jesus wasn't under any false impressions. In verse 3, we see that Jesus knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, and he knows he comes from God, and he went to God. He was pondering great and majestic things, um, but John makes it clear that Jesus knew. Um, He wasn't under false delusions, um, but he knows. His mind was focused, um, his mind was grounded directly in reality. Um, But his mind wasn't just grounded in reality, but it was also focused on glory. Excuse me. Um, In verse 3, we see that Jesus is meditating on two things. The first thing is that the Father has given him all authority. And the second is that he is going to be returning very, very soon to the place that he belongs This is what Jesus chose to focus on just hours before his death. He chose to focus on the glory, the prize before him. This passage in John emphasizes that it's because Jesus is thinking about these things that he rose up and washed the disciples' feet. So let's look at these glorious things that Jesus was thinking about. First, he um, he was thinking about his own authority. While John doesn't record it, Luke tells us in chapter 22, if you wouldn't mind turning there, 
Luke chapter 22, 24 to 26. Luke chapter 22, 24 to 26. The disciples are arguing about the, who was the greatest among them. So, and this is what it says. Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, their subjects, and those who exercise over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. This is, um, this is talking about the same incident, just Luke doesn't talk about um, the actual washing of the feet. Now, it's interesting to me to note that Jesus is inarguably the greatest of everyone in that room. Um, there is no dispute, you know, who's the greatest or whatever when Jesus is in the conversation. Yet he is the one that serves. He is the one that washes their feet. Because, after all, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so Jesus, when he washes the disciples' feet in John 13, he's demonstrating that power is not meant to be used as a tool of domination, like the Gentiles use it in other kingdoms, but instead power and greatness is supposed to be used as a tool of service for the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus washes the disciples' feet. The second thing we see that Jesus is focusing on in verse 3 of chapter 13 of John is that he is going to be returning where he belongs. This fact, this hope of glory, is what sustains him through what is undoubtedly going to be the most agonizing part of his life. Hebrews 12.2, we won't turn to it, but Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and this is the important part, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. It was this joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure what he did. But because he had this promise of future joy, because he was going to be returning to the Father very soon, the same promise meant that he was not going to be with his disciples for much longer. Because he was returning to his Father, the period he had spent with his disciples was drawing to an end. So, Jesus in John 13, knowing that he doesn't have a lot of time left with his disciples, chooses to leave some final lessons. Um, we see that um, if we just take a wide overview, John 13 all the way to 16 is a series of lessons by the Lord to his disciples just before he's arrested. And the washing of the disciples' feet is the beginning of those lessons. So these lessons of Jesus begin with the washing of the disciples' feet. He, his mind was not only grounded in reality, but it was focused on the promised glory before him. Um, but it didn't stop there. Um, it was also driven to love. Walking in sandals in the filthy roads of first century Israel made it imperative that the feet be washed before a communal meal, especially since people at the Passover reclined at a very low table and the feet were very much on display. And so, this job was typically reserved for the lowest of servants at the bottom of the household pecking order. So, when Jesus rose from the table and began to wash his disciples' feet, he is doing the work of the lowest of servants. Imagine the disciples' thoughts at this time. They're heatedly arguing over who's the greatest, and they suddenly notice that Jesus is silently getting up, 
getting a towel and a basin, and washing their feet, they would have been stunned that the one who is inarguably the greatest among them, their Lord and Master, was washing their feet. And in some sense, I'm sure they would have felt that this was not right. Um, But it's precisely this notion of greatness, um, these beliefs about greatness, that the disciples about, um, this is the idea of greatness that the disciples had that Jesus wanted to overturn. Looking at Luke again, we see that Jesus explicitly points out that the one who is the greatest among them, the one who governs, should be the one that serves. And in John 13, if you wouldn't mind, let's read verse 12 to 15. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus doesn't condemn the desire of greatness that the disciples have, but he points out that their desire is grossly misdirected. The disciples should desire greatness, but not on earth, not in the kingdoms of the Gentiles, but they should desire greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was great, and the disciples implicitly should want to be great, but not so that they can exercise this power like the Gentiles do, but instead they should want to use this greatness for service because the rightful exercise of authority and greatness is to serve and not dominate others. To help get um, this point across, think of a first century Israelite shepherd. A shepherd is very obviously greater than a sheep, but this greatness and this importance isn't meant to be used as a tool for domination. A good shepherd doesn't use the sheep and then discard them. He doesn't kill one for dinner every single day. A good shepherd will instead use his greatness over the sheep to care for the sheep and to serve them and nurture them so that they can grow. The shepherd's authority over the sheep should prompt it to take care of the sheep and not dominate them. And so Jesus is the greatest example of this principle of true greatness. He washes their feet, not because he is under any false impressions that he needed to, and it wasn't because he didn't know that he was their teacher and Lord. Verses 3 and 14 prove otherwise. He knew who he was. Rather, he washes their feet because he wanted to set an example to the, believe, um, to the disciples, proving how his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, operates. Jesus And, and Jesus doesn't just stop at washing feet, although that was humiliating. Um, he, he goes further than that, and he dies the death of a criminal of a cross, on a cross um, just a few hours later. Uh, Mark 10.45, you know, for the, son, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So greatness in this kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, is not defined by how much people serve you, like it is in every single other kingdom. Greatness in this kingdom is defined by how much you serve others. And so now we turn to the application of this. If Christ, the undisputed greatest of everyone in that room, with the most authority, willingly chose to kneel and wash dusty feet and, and then after that continue to die for them, how much more willing should we be to serve others? 
As Jesus repeatedly stated over his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it is very, very different to the kingdoms of the Gentiles. This is the lesson of humility. There's a really beautiful song on this titled The Servant King um, that I'll take a minute to read an excerpt from. It says, From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve, and to give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ that we are serving. Our king is a servant king, and so to follow Jesus means that by definition we must serve each other. We are repeatedly called to serve, and we see an excellent example of this in Paul. Um, in, we won't turn to it now, but in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is outlining to the people at Corinth that he is a free man because of the gospel, that he can do what he needs to do to glorify God. But he also says that for the sake of the gospel, that he has forfeited access to things that could potentially hinder the gospel's work and cause young believers to stumble in their faith. And he concludes this by saying, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. I have become all things to all men, that by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. This is the true definition of greatness. Greatness is not meant to be used to lord it over someone else or to dominate them, but to serve each other. We should want to be great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not as the world thinks of greatness. We should eagerly look to serve as our Savior served us. Paul plainly says in the same passage that he runs that he may obtain the same prize set before him. And that is the first lesson of Christ-likeness that we can draw from the passage. But there's also a second um, lesson that can be derived. The first one was on true greatness, and the second one is on our heavenly hope. In verse 3, we previously touched on the fact that Jesus was returning back to where we belonged. And we talked about this in the fact that he did not have long left with his disciples. But let's re-examine um, that sentence in the terms of his hope. Um, the hope that inspired his incarnation and crucifixion. So reading from verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Um, and again, in Hebrews twelve two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had a joy set before him, a hope that gave him strength. It was this promise of future joy that allowed Jesus to die for us like he did. And this, was, this is what gave him the strength to do what he did on the cross. Uh, and in other passages, we actually read of him actually attaining this hope. If we can flick over to Philippians chapter 2, um, and we'll be reading that famous passage starting at verse 5. That's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And um, just one verse from Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, um, Jesus, and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ had this hope set before him of promised glory, and he endured the shame and he bore our sin, and as a result gained his desired joy, and is now, even today, seated in authority at the right hand of God, where he truly belongs. Christ, from these verses, clearly received a reward for what he did in obedience for the Father. It is because, it is because of what he did that, is, that he has received the glory and honor that he now has. He is, as Hebrews would describe it, describe it seated at the right hand of God. He is, as Philippians would describe it, given a name above every other name, as well as total dominion over everyone else. Jesus Christ, our King, had a supreme hope and a joy that sustained him and allowed him to carry out our salvation. However, the wonderful thing is that we too have been given a hope of glory. Um, if we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, and we'll read at verse 11 to 13. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, for he cannot abide himself. And also um, from Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. That I may know him and the power of, his, power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul makes it clear that we too have a glorious hope given to us, and that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. He is, as Colossians would put it, the firstborn from the dead, and this means that we too are promised that we will rise as Jesus did, we will be like Christ in every way possible. 
we have a glorious hope set before us. As Christians, we look forward to the day, um, because it is our goal, we look forward to the day that we will become like him in every single way possible. And what this looks like, we have very little idea. Um, The Bible provides little more than tantalizing promises. We are told of a marriage supper and streets of gold and trees of life. We are told of a heavenly city and of a glorious body. We are told of palms and crowns and robes and stars. And most tantalizingly to me, we are told that we will see him no longer through a dark glass, but face to face, and that we will know him as he knows me. And this is our hope. Everything that we do should be in the light of eternity. Um, Henry Spafford, in his immortal hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, also wrote a stanza um, that's really, really touching, um, that has always stayed with me. And it says, But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming that we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. We have been promised an infinitely glorious hope for us, but this hope should drive us to service. We should not stop basking in these glorious promises, although they are glorious. Um, Like Jesus, um, when he washes the disciples' feet, we don't have much time left. We only have the rest of our lives or until Jesus comes back. Our hope in Christ, but also the lack of time, should rightfully drive us to serve others. But until our hope in heaven is consummated, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so we must gladly serve others as Christ did. We have discussed the mind of Christ. It was grounded in reality It was focused on promised glory, and it was driven to love. We looked at the two lessons that we can draw out of this, of what true greatness is, and of the glorious hope that we've been given. So let's look at the implications for it for us today. Um, Simply put, we have to be driven to service for one another. Christ, as a direct result of thinking on these things, as we read, was driven to serve his disciples, even to the extent of washing his disciples' feet and then dying for them. So how can we serve one another as Christ served us, or in a lesser way, as Paul serves the church in Corinth? Well, service by its nature is sacrificial. It involves a willingness to compromise your own personal dignity, like Christ, or time and money for the sake of helping someone else. What this service looks like for each person is different. And only God knows. But I know this much. We must serve one another. We are given the example of the greatest one of all who knelt down and washed his disciples' feet and then continued on to die for us. We are shown that true greatness is used in service to one another and it is not meant as a tool to dominate each other. But it doesn't stop there. We are also given a glorious hope founded on the bedrock of Jesus Christ's resurrection and with promises that one day we will be like him. We are promised that our hope will be consummated. It will happen. It is as good as done. All we need to do is wait eagerly until he comes back. And while we wait, we should seek to be great and to serve him and each other. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, these glorious verses, um, this meditation that you've given us. 
we thank you for this example of your mind um, in which because you were thinking of these things that you did what you did. And Lord, I pray that as your followers, um, as people who call themselves Christians, that we, will be follow- that we will be able to follow your example in a much more feeble and lesser way um, until one day we see you face to face and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In your son's precious name, amen.